Well, welcome to Perception Reception. Uh, my guest today is Carol Marine, veteran of five decades in broadcast journalism. And when she retired this past fall as the host and moderator of Chicago Tonight, WTTW called her a pillar of Chicago journalism and went on to say that she's received enough local and national awards to fill up a storage locker. She also retired from her role as political editor at NBC5 after the election. And right now, Carol and her longtime producer, Don Mosley, are continuing their work at my alma mater, DePaul University, as co-directors of the Center for Journalism, Integrity, and Excellence. So welcome, Carol. Thank you for doing this today. My pleasure, Rick. My pleasure. I didn't know you went to DePaul. Uh, went is the proper word, because uh, I uh, I went there uh, back in the 60s, and I, at that time, was also really involved in political campaigns. He had Lay Stevenson, Gene McCarthy. So I was not what you would call a stellar student. And uh, I had started out in the business college because I was going to go into law. And I thought the business would be a good background for me. And uh, one day the uh, dean called me in and said, uh, Mr. J.S. Kalka, you may want to think about making a change over to, uh, uh, to liberal arts, which uh, I, took his, I took his advice. <laughs> <laughs> so I was on the dean's list, but not the good one. <laughs> Oh, well, it happens, you know, and look, it, 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 where uh, you are now, though. So it worked yeah. out. So things worked out. Uh, uh, Carol, I, you know, you spent five decades in broadcast journalism. I've spent five decades in, uh, in and around politics and public affairs. And I think that, you know, we can probably take a look around and say that the political system is not functioning as it should. Um, many people just say it's broken. And I you have to say it's hard to argue against that. Uh, if that's the case, if it's broken, uh, is the press part of the problem or do you see it as potentially being part of the solution or maybe both? I think it's both. And I think we're all part of the problem and part of the solution. The One of the greatest failings right now, and I see it um, in terms of the preparation of our students, is they really have not studied civics the way you did or I did. So government really isn't taught anymore. So an understanding or a feeling about government doesn't begin. We in the media have done a very poor job of media literacy. Which that is to say, there are people who watch MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, the commentariat class of Fox News, and they think that's all news. We've, we've blurred and merged the lines, and now we're trying um, to do some remedial work on that. The Tribune has moved its columnists to the editorial page, finally. I just looked at a New York Times editorial, which made it more explicit than ever before. This is not reporting. This is written by people who have opinions, but also information and research. It is the constant education of the public. And that's our responsibility. And it's also the public's responsibility. But all of that feeds into the rage and the disconnection between citizens and their politics, citizens and their government. So, I mean, we saw uh, uh, the manifestation of that on, on January 6th. And, 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 and we've seen it 
in many other ways. I don't want to just have that be the singular event because uh, it was at the U.S. Capitol because we uh, honestly see it on a pretty regular basis. And and so is it is it retrievable at this point? I mean, you have so many people that are in their bunkers and even the ones who haven't been radicalized uh, but are just ba- basing uh, their views on um, social media posts um, and incomplete uh, information, incorrect information. I mean, do, do we have to say, look, maybe we just need to focus on the kids, uh, on young people, because there's a lost generation here, or it, or, or might it be salvageable? And how is that possible? And what role can the media play in helping that? One of Studs Trickle's last books he wrote when he was 90 was Hope Dies Last. <laughs> he went on to write two more books because among other things, his hope didn't die either in, in the world of ideas. I, I don't think it's irretrievable, but, but we have to dial back a little bit. My own mother, my late mother, when Bill Clinton was being impeached, called me while I was sitting in my office at NBC and said, you people, look what you're doing, how wrong you people are in reporting. And I go, hey, wait, mom, hey, wait, wait, you know, this is Carol, your daughter. People, including generations past and generations present, cling to their own views. And one of the education points that I think we need to offer to people is yes, it is possible to be a biased reporter. I know them, you know them. It is also part, totally possible and real to be a biased viewer, to take your own views to what you see and not listen. I don't know what the solution is in terms of teaching listening skills, but I don't think this is a conversation just with young people. This is a conversation with Americans about hearing other people, even if they prefer to hate them or prefer to disagree with them. And I'm not a Pollyanna, and I know it's a hard, hard pull, but I believe that you keep trying every day. And so, and, you know, Rick, from the time I was a reporter and I was 23 years old, there were people writing to me telling me I was a communist or telling me that the news media was uh, fed propaganda lines from the government. So a lot of this stuff isn't new. It's just not been very improved upon. Yeah, I, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I've always been, and, and I continue to be a news junkie. I mean, uh, in fact, my uh, uh, children and, and grandchildren are always telling me, you know, get, get off, uh, you know, the news and watch, uh, you know, watch something to relieve stress and, you know, watch a comedy, watch something else. And invariably, I find myself switching to a news channel because I can't help myself. Um, But I I tell you, I mean, I sometimes get very frustrated uh, when I'm watching the cable stations, not only because of the the repetition, but, you know, sort of a a constant um, refrain of, asking guests that are being interviewed to speculate. Uh, and, um, uh, and so I tell you, I mean, I, I have found, uh, and I've been surprised myself, uh, 
that I, even when there are big breaking stories, I can only watch so much of whatever cable I happen to be watching. And then I switch to local news. Uh, and I've, I, I, at least I've persuaded myself and I, I think it's right that local news does a more balanced job generally uh, than the, you know, than the national outlets. Now, maybe that's a unfair characterization or too broad of a generalization. So, I mean, what do, what, what do you think about that? I think that, um, I think a couple of things. One, the first thing I think is that everybody needs to read Margaret Sullivan's Ghosting the News, which she just published, because it's talking about the dissolution, the disintegration of local news because newspapers are closing, because stations are being gobbled up. And so we got to worry about saving local news too. What I also think is that networks need to have their feet held to the fire. For instance, and I worked for NBC for a long time. Right. NBC has clear news standards about opinion and what you don't do. MSNBC, in my view, totally confuses the world about why it can do opinions there and Lester Holt is any different. Well, he is. Fox News has the commentariat class. There are some really good journalists doing the news part of Fox News. Brett Baer is one of them. Chris Wallace is another. But it's very confusing for anybody watching and not part of the business or part of what you do where you work with it all the time to know how these blurry lines really end up being lines at all. And this is where we need to stiffen our spines and remind ourselves that there aren't exceptions to the standards of news. So there should not be. Uh, and, and then comes, and these are books being published all the time. Our students will come and say, there's no such thing as objectivity. Forget objectivity. Nobody can be objective and nobody should be. And I'm just going to tell my truth in my story, whether you like it or not. Well, great. Except your truth needs to come up against other people's truths in a balancing. And you have to work for objectivity, even if it isn't an absolute value an absolute mathematical value in that sense. I, I think this is a discussion that needs a fight, an argument, a dis, I mean, a, a place to go in our society where we continue to interrogate what we read, what we watch. And then I'll stop this rant here with one more thing. Because our news is now done by a menu, I'll pick a horoscope for today. I'll look for the weather. My phone will plug into the New York Times. I'll get um, the stock prices if I'm interested, but I won't read. Um, Conservative press, I won't read things. I won't look at Fox. I'll only watch MSNBC or NBC. When you start doing the menu journalism, then you, there's a lot of stuff that's off the menu. You're not trying a lot of stuff. You're not sampling a lot of stuff. And that is part of how the current availability of so many outlets also clouds our view because we just pick and choose. Yeah, so uh, you you and, and Don are dealing with 
college students over at DePaul. And I'm, I do want to take a little bit of time in a, a couple of minutes to talk about the work you guys are, are doing over there. Uh, but I wanted to sort of drill back down on, on the local news angle, because um, I think that a lot of people, uh, those who go to uh, what we call the mainstream media nowadays, as opposed to all the social media, um, I, I find that, that there still is more of a dependence on local news. Now, it may be, as you yeah. said, uh, that they want, they want to find out what the drive time is uh, to the office, and they want to find out what the weather's going to be the next five days. Uh, and that may be what drives them to the local news more than the news does. Uh, but uh, is there a role? If, if local news outlets, let's say, uh, whether it's Chicago or New York, if all the local news outlets got together and said, look, uh, we're competitors, but, um, you know, we need to strike a blow here for, for local news so that we're around a decade from now. Uh, might there be something that um, uh, a unified local news community could do to have an impact on, on viewers, at least, at least in their viewing area? Competitively, competitively, that's hard. What local news has done over the years is they've tried to combine video resources. For instance, they'll send one camera combined for all of them to City Hall. Problem with that is then there's a guy or a woman behind a camera shooting Lori Lightfoot, but who's asking the questions? You know, I want Marianne Ahern in the front row of that, my former colleague. I want some of the reporters from the other stations, and I want the political figure to be questioned seriously. It's really hard, I think, Rick, competitively to do that. But, but you're right that we need to save, fortify, and enrich local news. That's some of what's happening with places like ProPublica, some of the foundations. I don't personally believe that that necessarily is a sustainable model. But, um, but we are seeing on a subscription basis in a lot of news deserts, and there are increasingly news deserts, where um, things like Report for America funds a reporter for the Sun-Times. So the Sun-Times in Chicago can hire somebody else to go to the, the South suburbs that are news deserts otherwise. So I do think that some of these things really are happening. There are some entrepreneurial models in local news that are catching on. And so I mean, this goes back to Studs Terkel and Hope Dies Last. I do see rays of hope along these lines. And, but, it, but it's, it's a tough road. And part of the challenge of social media is using it in a way that is an instrument of education and not just opinion and or vilification. And that requires a little more thinking than we've done also. So, I mean, I, I go uh, generally twice a year, obviously uh, that's changed uh, uh, with the pandemic, but uh, generally twice a year I go and uh, Wally Pedrazic, who is known by so many, yeah, uh, teaches a class in, um, of, of politics in, in journalism. 
Uh, and so I'm there and I always begin uh, my conversations with the class uh, by asking, where do you get your news? And literally go around. Um, and I, it, it's, at first it was surprising to me and now it's not surprising. I just get a little depressed, but you know, nobody, uh, none of the people in the class ever uh, says uh, my daily newspaper. Occasionally somebody will say, well, yeah, I'm, I'll get news uh, from a news aggregator, but yeah, I may watch uh, the 10 o'clock news on channel, whatever, uh, one of the local channels. Um, very few ever say, uh, that they even watch the uh, the national cable. It's, it's mostly they get it online from a news aggregator. Um, and so uh, where that train has already left the station, uh, you know, are there ways in your view, and, you know, you and Don are over there, DePaul, how, how, how do you get that back? Um, um, we, we do get it back. And, and here, um, among other ways, is how. So we have seniors and graduate students who are just about to jump into the profession. Don and I are uh, told that our job is to do one more last dive into complicated reporting. And we start out those classes by saying, what do you read? And we get some of the answers that, that you've gotten. No, these are journalism students, so they do, they do read more. And we say, what do you watch? Well, they really don't watch because they watch on their iPhone or on their iPad. And then I say this, let me see if I understand this. You wanna be me, but you don't watch me. <laughs> you wanna be me, but you never read me in the Sun-Times. So what do you think it is that I've been doing all these years? And then it's a real introduction into, and we do this with bylines. When you read, who do you read? And they'll say, in some cases, well, you know, the New York Times or maybe the Tribune or, no, 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 no. Who do you read? What bylines does your eye go to when you always read it? And there's generally a lot of quiet. Some have answers, but many do not. And we explain, you want to go into this business and you want people to watch your work or hear your work or read your work. If you don't know who they are, why are they gonna know who you are? So it's time to figure out whom you respect, whom you don't, whom you'd like to emulate and who not. And it becomes you know, a, a two quarter long discussion of understanding who are the really good writers, who maybe not so much, but <clears throat> reorienting their thinking to knowing who's out there and who's doing this work. If you go to find a heart surgeon, you wanna know the name of your heart surgeon and you wanna know that people know his name or her name. Same thing for your news as far as I'm concerned. And of course you and Don are doing this at DePaul, but I, I would say would that this would be happening at uh, colleges and universities around the country and, and frankly uh, in high school because uh, by the time these young people get to college, they've already sort of formed some views, uh, uh, although it's encouraging to hear that you're, you're breaking through. Uh, but um, it, it, there needs to be more of this going on. Uh, it needs to lot. happen in grammar school, Rick. Yeah. 
children need to be introduced to the reading of the news and the watching of the news when they're in the first and second grade. You know, and there that used to happen a lot. In schools, used to have, you know, the, these little daily reader papers. There was, you began to, to get into the habit of knowing what was happening. Some sort of sense of current events, some sort of sense of, of, of what government was, who politicians are. But I'll also dial back to you and say, I can remember sitting in federal court 35 years ago when a jury was being impaneled in a hugely controversial case. And the jurors were being asked because the defense was gonna say, oh, it's too much notoriety. They'll never get a fair trial here. What do you read? I would tell you that 60 to 70% of the jurors didn't then. When you do read, what do you read? Well, I read my daily shopper. I read my local newspaper. Do you read or watch anything else? Our news literacy problem goes back decades, not with the advent of social media, but way, way before that. So to your point, we need to remediate in a really serious way. So we're actually working on, in fact, we just started working on a project for iCivics uh, that is focused on, on uh, uh, you know, a major initiative for civic ed education in our schools. I mean, uh, and, and I think you, you have right now the, the huge investments that have been made in STEM, and now uh, it's mm -hmm. STEAM, uh, but, uh, and that's great. I mean, it's very important that that happen. Uh, but what's happened in the meantime is that civics education has almost disappeared. I mean, yeah. there's almost none of it. Uh, and you're right. I mean, I remember when I was in school, I mean, this was back in the 50s. And we, I mean, we did study current events and and uh, we spent a lot of time on, on history and social studies and, and, and civics. And it's practically disappeared now. So, I mean, is what we need really a, a, a new national commitment to, to civics education? Because it sounds like this. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I think even among the smartest students, if you go high school to high school and say, what's the difference between the capital in Springfield, Illinois, and the capital in Washington in terms of legislative bodies? There'd be a few blank looks because the there are so many layers of government. You can argue it's dry and, and not interesting and not sexy, but the truth is that it is teachable and teachable in an interesting way, but it used to be legislated that you had to. By the time you got out of eighth grade in Illinois or you got out of high school in Illinois, that you had American history, you had a sense of national government and a sense of local government. And that sort of mandate no longer exists. So let me switch gears for, for a, a moment here away from the civics education and, and talk about a, a couple of things that I see um, that, that trouble me. I mentioned one of them already, uh, but it, it, you know, I'll admit I look at it from the public affairs end uh, and the political end as opposed to the journalistic end. 
Uh, and that's the, the line of questioning, uh, whether it's with the impeachment going on right now, the second impeachment, um, or it's on any other topic. Uh, you, you, and the cable stations do this more than anybody. They have a guest on and uh, they ask questions that are based on speculation, the what ifs. And uh, that uh, annoys me, uh, to be honest with you. Like, you know, uh, there was uh, an endless barrage the, earlier in this week. Uh, are the um, House managers uh, going to call witnesses? And I, I, I think, you know, very early on, the House managers answered, you know, uh, our strategy, we're not, we're, we're not going to give it out on this show right now. Um, uh, you know, good try. Uh, but it's persistent. And particularly if you're watching cable, I mean, you can hear the same question asked of five different people uh, in, in, you know, an hour and a half or two hours. Um, is, is that because it turns me off, to be honest with you, but it may just be that because I'm viewing it as a public affairs person, I'm going, God, don't answer a speculative question like, like that because you're going down the rabbit hole. But I want want to hear your take on it from the journalism end of the equation. Well, I think there is um, a paucity of journalism on most of the cables. I think there's some, and there are, you know, and, and there are some sort of standards, but now it is uh, outrage, either liberal outrage or conservative outrage. So I don't spend a lot of time on the cables. And, and part of what I think is happening is we assume, because you and I are junkies, that if we watch them, America's watching them. The truth is, America is not watching the cables in those large numbers. You know that, you know, as somebody who deals in politics and public affairs. Right. So they operate sort of too much mental space among a few of us. But the truth is, the bulk of, of the nation isn't watching it. The really great news to me is 60 Minutes, which is considered kind of an old person's broadcast, and I worked for it for five years. Yeah, I remember. Um, draws in 12, 14, 15 million viewers a Sunday, telling you stories you don't see anyplace else, and covering foreign affairs as well as politics and other things. And it stands as, a, as an example that people are hungry for original stories. They don't know how to ask for, they don't know how to put it into a menu of their phone because they didn't know that Turkmenistan, we know was mining diamonds, whatever, you know what I mean? So what I think there is some hope for traditional media delivering an unusual and important product to a large audience. But what is also important in news literacy is, and this goes back to the young people, showing them news sources they don't know how to look for or haven't looked for. So don't just go to BuzzFeed. Don't just go to Apple News or whatever the aggregator is. But to help steer young people to the rich, uh, wide vistas of all kinds of stories. Real clear politics is a great example. It's an aggregator, but it's an aggregator of both conservative 
and liberal news. It's a whole menu of different kinds of writers and analysts and, and opinion. Somewhere along the line, our education needs to scoop more people into the possibility that there are more views than their own, there are more places to look than they've looked, and that it is fun to read them. So it's critical thinking is really at the core yeah. of it, right? Yeah. That's what's sort of gone MIA is critical thinking. People are in a silo. They get their news and information in that silo. Right. They don't want to venture out of that silo. So they're not asking the, 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 the questions uh, and demanding more information. You know, in, in high school and in college, I was a debater. Debate taught me more than anything else I ever learned because I had to learn how to argue the affirmative side of something and then the negative side of it. I had to research a compelling case on either side. Well, when you're forced to think that way, you begin to think that way. And so there are, there are teaching methodologies that can get us into this level of intellectual engagement where we go looking for information we otherwise might not have sought. I mean, it's funny because I apply and I always have uh, sometimes it drives clients crazy. Uh, but I, when we're involved in a crisis situation, we do a lot of crisis management. Uh, but I, I try to look at it from the other side yeah. uh, and raise those questions, even if it's irritating uh, to the client at times, because you need to do that if you want to do the right kind of job and, and really uh, have the truth come out and, and, and have people uh, have there be credibility to the position you're taking. Right. And, and that requires an openness to hear something you really might not want to hear or read something you might not really love reading. It's why we explain in class there really are, this is Chris Fusco from the Sun-Times who, who gave me this spiel, which I love. There are three buckets, straight reporting, analysis, commentary. We say to our students, we know you love all the websites that are advocacy and all of that. Great, go ahead and read them, but this isn't that in this class. This class is straight news and some analysis born of some knowledge and experience but it's not your opinion. Whatever you decide your truth is, you're listening to some other people's truths right now and trying to step back and provide a holistic picture of the different arguments for any given thing. One other topic as we're winding down to the end here, Carol, is um, you know we all want there to be transparency, and honesty, uh, uh, particularly by political figures, but political, um, business, not for it almost doesn't matter. Uh, you want when uh, you have somebody that is going before the media, going before the public, going before Congress to speak the truth. And, and that has been um, uh, especially challenging in recent times. And, and part of the problem, of course, uh, and it, it's also the media environment because uh, 
uh, you know, it's instantaneous now. It's not like when we were starting our careers where there was this thing called a news cycle. Now, you know, the news cycle can be about, uh, you know, uh, 12 seconds long and, uh, and you know, before you get a response because people are tweeting and whatever. Um, and so is it more of a problem now that transparency and honesty can be weaponized and not can be, it is weaponized on a daily basis by political opponents. And does that make the challenge even greater than it would normally be? Always difficult to hold uh, public figures feet to the fire uh, on, on important issues, but is it more complicated now because the minute somebody uh, gives their honest opinion, it immediately, you know, five minutes later, it's weaponized by the other side. Well, it may be, but in that I don't do much boo-hoo for political figures or governmental figures who've asked for the job and asked the voters to give them the job by promising all this transparency and then trying to black out all of the documents that I'm obtaining through the Freedom of Information Act. So I don't, I don't weep many tears for them. What, what I do think happens, Rick, and for instance, you know, viewers have a pretty, a pretty decent gauge of who looks like they're telling the truth and who's not. In, in, in kind of the to and fro of asking questions and answering questions or who's stonewalling and who's not. I am convinced, knowing you, that when you do crisis management, you tell people not to dissemble. If they're gonna answer something, answer it. If they're not gonna answer it, and it's better not to answer at all than to dance around the edges of something as though you can, you can spin it. And, and so the, the inclination of people to spin trips them up all the time. And, and that's where you've got to decide, is the truth worth telling? Or did you just get into the wrong business by promising one thing and not delivering it on the other end? I mean, I, I, I got to be honest with you, Carol. I, you know, you, you know my politics. I've, I've been on the D side although the, the sort of the middle of the, of the D side of all my, my life. I, I, I try to be a moderate and, and I've always believed in reaching out across the aisle um, and, and do that to this day. Uh, but it, I, it actually, when Liz Cheney, and I, I was not a fan of her dad at all <laughs> uh, when he was vice president, and uh, but it brought tears to my eyes when she stood up and took that well, really courageous vote. Uh, and and you know, part of the leadership team, and she felt she had to do that, and it, it just moved me tremendously when she did that. Well, and and there are people who stand up on both sides, there are people who lay down on both sides, yep. including the moderate D side. So, yeah. you know, oh, yeah, you're, uh, you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. And so I am always impressed by people who tell the truth, even though it may cost them an election or a public office. And because it occurs to me that those are the people we want in public office because they don't consider it a permanent job, a permanent pension benefit, a permanent 
sort of a, a way to, to spend your time, but it is a gift and a privilege, and it's a privilege that you have to be willing to forsake if the truth uh, is required and, and, you know, and you're able to give it, or you better give it as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, well, I'm into that. All right, last question. This is probably a, it's definitely an unfair question for somebody who's been in the business for five decades. But I have to ask, as you look back, most memorable story, it could be memorable uh, because it was the toughest to cover, uh, the most uplifting, or it could have been the most comical or ridiculous. What 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 stands out in your mind as a, like a, I mean, I can't believe I'm covering this story. It's an impossible question to answer, but I'll try to answer with a couple. <laughs> One of the most meaningful stories I ever did uh, was after 9-11 to go into Afghanistan and cover the Taliban and two brothers from the Chicago suburbs who were try had been trying to um, democratize Afghanistan for years. Traveling through the Torkham Gate into, into Afghanistan, watching, seeing these rusted old Soviet tanks still sitting there, it was stunning for me. And I will never forget Afghanistan. I, I finally thought for a second I could understand uh, as I looked into these blue eyes, these Alexander the Great blue eyes of the Afghans on the street. Um, in terms of, of politics, public corruption and organized crime remain one of my enduring passions. And I am fascinated speaking of, of um, moderates and, and the Dems is, here's Dick Durbin and Tammy Duckworth fighting for John Lausch, yep. the US attorney that Joe Biden office didn't consult with them about trying to um, get rid of him in the midst of one of the most, if not the most consequential federal investigation of our political time that scoops in Commonwealth Edison, Mike Madigan, power brokers everywhere, and not at the bottom of the food chain, but at the top of the food chain. And so, um, I think that um, if, if I'm going to miss something, I'm really going to miss not continuing to cover that. Yeah, well, and uh, I'm hopeful that uh, uh, I, I would like to believe maybe it was an oversight that will get corrected. I, I, I hope that maybe uh, with uh, Senators Durbin and Duckworth uh, stepping up and speaking out uh, as vocally as they did that perhaps... Uh, uh, there may be a different decision made on on uh, the U.S. attorney here. I really do hope so, because whether it was Patrick Fitzgerald appointed under Bush, but retained over by Obama, and now John Lausch uh, appointed under Trump, but with 100% of the Senate approved and with the support of Duckworth and Durbin, there are genuinely professional U.S. attorneys who are not partisan, who take this as a serious and sort of sacred oath. And we've seen a number of them. And so I hope that uh, Duckworth and Durbin prevail on this. Well, I do too. And we'll let that be the last word. And Carol, thank you so much. 
Uh, I know you got a really busy schedule there and uh, we're very grateful that you were on Perception Reception. Thank you. It was a total pleasure. You take care of it.